And yes, as you probably could have guessed by this moment, I have decided in 2020 to run for president. Listening to the Weekly Brew with Austin Stanton, Zach Taylor, and Jeremy Paxton. Welcome to the fourth installment of the Weekly Brew, your source for political, social, and sports commentary brewed up in 30 minutes or less. I'm Austin Stanton, and I'm joined again by my co-hosts Zach Taylor and Jeremy Paxton. Now, guys, before we get started, how was the week? Are you voting for Kanye in 2020? Uh, yeah, I've already got my yard sign. As long as Miley's his VP. Oh, Miley. All right, so now let's get into the real stuff. Time to sit back, grab a drink, listen, and be informed. Let's start with the big lead. The big lead. The U.S. was marred by yet again another tragic shooting last Wednesday as reporter Allison Parker and cameraman Adam Ward were presenting a local tourism story at an outdoor shopping mall in Virginia before they were gunned down on live TV by what the media has reported as a disgruntled coworker. This is an all-too-common occurrence here in the United States. In fact... The U.S. has extraordinary levels of gun violence. America has six times as many firearm homicides as Canada and 15 times as many as Germany, according to U.N. data compiled by The Guardian's Simon Rogers. In fact, no other developed country has the high levels of gun violence that America has. Guys, this is a tragic story and one that we see all too often. What can we do to help minimize these risks and to minimize these threats of violence in our country? You know, I honestly don't know if there is anything that we can do we can minimize, um, but the fact is that the guns aren't what ca- is what is causing um, these horrific tragedies. It's, it's the condition of the human heart, and you can't legislate evil out of people. I read something this week in reference to the UK comparing how they had a handgun ban essentially back in 1997 and comparing their crime rates and statistics with that of the U.S., According to these statistics, there are 4.8 murders per 100,000 people in the U.S. as compared to only 1.2 per 100,000 people in the U.K. So their homicides didn't go down, but when you look at the overall classification of violent crimes, once you adjust for the difference in labeling and classifying of crimes between the two countries, the U.S. has an average of 403 violent crimes per 100,000 people, but in the U.K. it's 776 per 100,000 people. So what this shows me is that we can reduce the gun violence, but we can't reduce the violence. And that's what is really at the root of this. And I think anything else is just putting a Band-Aid or not getting to the root of the problem. Well, Zach, I, I, I respect your opinion, you know, bringing the violence in here, but I think the larger issue is just homicide rates. And that is one of the things that I just find absolutely alarming. In the United States, there's approximately one gun for every single person that is a citizen in this country. And in 2012, uh, you know, UN data suggests that, you know, homicide, gun-related murder rates in the developed world, the United States leads every single developed country. I mean, we're talking more homicides, gun-related homicides than Chile, Turkey, Switzerland, Belgium, Italy, Bulgaria, Ireland, Canada, Sweden, Finland, and even, you know, the United Kingdom. I don't know. These numbers are just startling to me. I think the the issue with one of those statistics, it's a little misleading. Um, 65% of 
own uh, guns owned by people in this country are owned by 30% of gun owners. So it's not like one person in like ev- one person has just one gun in this country. You have a whole lot of gun enthusiasts who just have a ton of guns and a ton of weaponry. So it's not quite as evenly distributed as it is just one gun for one person. Are we at the point now where, you know, something does need to, you know, to be done that their legislation does need to be passed? I mean, I know gun control is always a hot topic here in the United States. Does action need to be taken here? I mean, I know the NRA's talking point around this and, you know, they say that the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun and, you know, with all due respect to Wayne LaPierre that in the gun lobby, that's complete bullshit. One of the things that kind of irritates me is this past weekend here in Houston, we saw Texas deputy Darren Goforth shot 15 times outside of a Chevron station while refueling his cruiser at around 8, 830 at night. I mean, he was armed. I mean, I, I just don't understand the inaction that's taking place. Is America concerned about the gun lobby or what is the issue behind all of this? I guess I guess what I see in in how gun legislation isn't going to be the ultimate issue is that the people the types of people that are for the most part the types of people that are committing these horrendous crimes and 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 causing so much of these statistics and they're not the type of people who are going to be affected about whether or not we take away the Second Amendment. Austin, I I think it's interesting. I, I'm I'm sort of in the the camp that you know would suggest that you know the the burden in in terms of when we look at gun violence, it's not the guns that are causing the crime. I mean, it's the people behind them. And so, um, you know, I, I look at a country like uh, Switzerland, where um, gun ownership is not only encouraged, but it's extremely common. Um, and and you, you look at that and you see that despite that, their crime, their crime rate is incredibly low. In fact, it's not uncommon to be on a public bus or just in, you know, in a cafe in Switzerland and see you know, gun-toting civilians about. Um, so it, there's a way to make you know, a, a gun culture work. It's just um, I, I think it's a matter of uh, how we approach guns and our, our, our attitude towards them, which you, know, you could make the argument that there is a little bit too much um, you know, rah-rah guns from the, the gun lobby in this country and that, that maybe they're uh, treated a little bit too casually, not, um, not seriously enough. But um, I, I, I'm generally a fan of uh, not only the Second Amendment, but, you know, the idea that people should have the right to arm themselves. And uh, I cannot tell you um, how many stories I come across, whether because I'm looking for them or just because I happen to, to hear them, um, of people with concealed carry licenses being able to stop crimes either against themselves or against someone else, um, and so I, I, I don't I don't look at guns as the problem just simply because when you uh, make laws to restrict gun ownership or um, gun ownership or uh, people's access to guns that, that that doesn't hurt people who are obviously ignoring the law in the first place. Um, that just hurts the, the law-abiding citizen that's trying to own a gun legally um, and exercise his rights. So, you know, I, I, I think that at the core of this issue, especially, I mean, if we're just going to take this back to, to mass shootings and what happened in Virginia, uh, there's some other things that I, I think explain much better um, the problem with guns and mass shootings in this country. And it's, it's certainly not, I, I don't think, you, you can't just lay that at the, at the feet of the gun lobby or guns in general. What are some of the other root causes behind some of these mass shootings, Jeremy? This is a topic that's given a lot of lip service by Republican politicians. That's certainly something I see a lot uh, as a common thread going through all of these mass shootings as the 
the characteristics of these shooters all line up pretty well with what we know about uh, the personality disorders. They, they tend to uh, have traits, you know, antisocial traits, which um, we see a lot of people who are in prison. Um, of course, I don't know for our listeners if they know, but, you know, one of the key things uh, with someone who is struggling with something like antisocial personality disorder is a lack of empathy, you know, a tendency to see people as objects and a, a tendency to, to have these sort of inflated, grandiose ideas about themselves. I know certainly this Virginia shooter, he, uh, his manifesto indicated that he, he thought very highly of himself, not only what he was doing, um, but in his uh, malice and callousness towards his victims. So I, I, I certainly think that there is a mental health, um, based on what we know about him, that there's certainly something going on um, with his mental status. And so um, it's hard just to, to place the blame for, for gun violence and mass shootings just at the feet of one particular cause. And that's interesting that you bring up mental illness. And I, you know, I'm, you're the subject matter expert on this because of your background. But I did a little bit of digging into this. And, you know, while we can all agree that the, you know, the mental health care system here in the U.S. is just abysmal, and I don't think there's really any debate about that. Uh, Columbia's Paul Applebaum and Duke's Jeffrey Swanson concluded that only three to five percent of violent acts are attributable to serious mental illness and most do not involve guns. Also, the study said that in Sweden, it found that only 5.2 percent of violent crimes were committed by people with serious mental illness. Now, I think we can definitely agree in the case of this Virginia shooting that, uh, you know, the shooter was mentally, you know, ill mentally psychotic i mean he definitely had demons inside him uh, you know just absolutely sickening what he did but one of the things that i noticed how the media covered this we'll discuss this a little bit later with one of our interview guests is that the media you know almost put him in the limelight i mean you saw the new york daily news put the cover of the first person view of him pulling the trigger I'm curious what you guys think. Do, do you believe that, you know, the way the media sometimes handle handles these events, do you think they're almost perpetuating some of the issues, uh, especially for those that are mentally ill? Absolutely, I do. I think the media is so far gone in, in wanting to just race for the, the most money, the most clicks, the most views, that they will do whatever they can to entice the most controversy, the most gruesome aspect just to try and get more people to look at it. And I, I do think that they are not helping the situation in the way that they cover these things. I think German Lopez of Vox said it best in an article talking about the shootings and, you know, kind of everything that's been brought up in the media the last, you know, several years and how they've covered it. He said, America's high levels of gun violence mean horrible shootings happen every day. And, you know, that that's a fact. I mean, we're not talking, you know, mass shootings, but there are shootings that happen every day. He goes on to write that the Virginia TV shooting gives us a chilling up-close glimpse in what those deaths look like, but it shouldn't take video footage or a certain number of people killed or shot to realize that America has a unique problem with guns. It's one thing to talk about gun violence in general. That's, I feel like that's a separate issue from what we're looking at today with mass murders. Um, since, since the 70s, when they started keeping track of this, mass murders have not gone up or down. Actually, that's about 20 to 25 incidents a year. Um, and, you know, if you, uh, you know, going back here, 2003 was actually the most violent year for mass murders. We had 30 incidents. So um, I, I think part of this is media perception and the way that the media presents this to us. Uh, we, we certainly 
are we're prone to overestimate the frequency with which these things happen um, it, when they're thrown in our face uh, all day long. So, in fact, it, what some, something that's uh, often ignored, and we're, we're looking at the Sandy Hook shooting, the Aurora, Colorado shooting, this recent one, the most uh, deadly school uh, shooting slash incident, mass murder in history, occurred in the 20s. It was actually Bath, Michigan in 1927. There was a bombing that killed about 45 people, mostly children um, in the second to sixth grade in grade school. So um, it, it's you, we need to kind of take a step back. It, it, it's one thing to talk about gun violence, quite another to talk about mass killings and sort of these uh, very public homicides of, of multiple people. Gun-related, you know, mass murders aside, um, you know, living in the house with a gun can increase your odds of death. That states with more guns see more accidental deaths from firearms and children ages 5 to 14, you know, and are 11 times more likely to be killed with a gun in the U.S. compared to other developed countries. I think we, we agree that, you know, the root issue is, you know, the evil in people's hearts and that that's almost impossible to, to negate. But what can we do to make sure that we take extra measures to ensure that, that we're being that we're making safety that utmost priority? I, I don't know of any particular gun legislation or, or anything just off the top of my head, any policies that I've read over the last few years that, that could actually, you know, put in some sort of effect of like actually like helping any of this because to me it just seems like a lot of the people committing these sorts of crimes or mass murders they're going to find a way to get the gun one way or another and bypass whatever piece of legislation that you put in and you can't you know accidents happen um of course you know if if you have a gun that makes you more likely to uh you know have an accident with a gun than if you did not have a gun the same way if you have you know poison in your house that that makes you more likely to accidentally poison yourself than if you did not have any sort of poison in in your house i mean you you take on that risk by by having it um as far as what you can do to to fix those things i don't really know that there is anything just better education proper safety being taught there's certainly something to be said for um making sure that people with uh uh, previously diagnosed mental illness are are unable to obtain firearms but um you know certainly i i I still think it's it's to err to focus on the means with which people commit these crimes. I think that's, that's missing the sort of a broader cultural issue. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, certainly I, I would be in favor of, you know, making sure that we, um, are, are diligent in, uh, cross-checking, making sure if people have a record, if they've been institutionalized, if they've, if they have a, a record of, of violent behavior, um, that we certainly try to do everything we can to prevent, um, them getting access to firearms. It's definitely a very interesting subject, and it's. I think the country is hotly divided on this. In fact, we can look at uh, statistics that said, you know, gun control is popular, but it's actually getting less so. Um, in October 2013, Gallup found that 49% of Americans thought gun laws should be more strict, 37% thought they were fine, and 13 thought they were too strict. By comparison, in September 1990, a whopping 78% thought they should be more strict, and only 17% thought they were good enough. 2% thought they were too strict. So I think it's still a hotly you know, divided issue here in the United States. And uh, ultimately, I think uh, you know, safety should be our top priority, especially uh, with handling the situations. And uh, you know, I, it's, it's tragic what happens, and hopefully uh, you know, these numbers are reduced over time, whether it's education, uh, you know, making sure that people are aware of the risk um, and, you know, just 
making sure that people are smarter uh, in, in you know these types of situations. Really appreciate you guys' thoughts on that. Um, definitely some interesting uh, feedback and some different ideas. And uh, we'll actually discuss this a little bit more up next in the rundown. The Rundown. And joining us now on the Weekly Brew is Jason Ryan, who spent 15 years with ABC News and most recently was their producer for Homeland Security and the Justice Department. Jason, thank you for taking the time out tonight to join us. It's good to be with you. Jason, last week we saw the tragic shootings in uh, Virginia. And, you know, as somebody who had covered, uh, you know, several high profile mass shootings, what was your thought, you know, when you first heard the news of, you know, two journalists being shot on air on live TV? Obviously, um, beyond the immediate tragedy of, of hearing about this and just being stunned by the news that I had heard right as I got into my car on NPR uh, radio that morning, um, I immediately went back to thinking about some of uh, the, the coverage that I had done during the, uh, the D.C. sniper shootings uh, that took place back in 2002 in the, uh, in the Washington area. And remembering the fear that I felt as I went to more and more of those crime scenes, that I was uh, concerned, and I think a lot of my other you know, journalists at the time, uh, these shooters are becoming more and more brazen. And we started to, to think and, and have concern that, that as we arrived and set up uh, live locations, that these shooters might actually start to, uh, the D.C. snipers actually start to start shooting people live on air as they were doing TV reports. That was the one thing that went through my mind uh, after I heard about this, obviously after the immediate tragedy of just trying to comprehend about how a, uh, you know, two journalists who are doing their jobs and uh, are out trying to report the news, uh, and some gunman walks up to him and, and just kills him. I mean, it just it just doesn't make sense. Is that something that journalists are even considering in the back of their mind? Yeah, I think you know, in order for journalists to bring the stories uh, to people that they need, whether it's uh, you know a hurricane, um, as we just saw with Hurricane Katrina, uh, the 10th anniversary passing, or with uh, things like sniper attacks or you know terrorist attacks. Um, you know, think about the events of, of September 11th. You know, journalists are always going to be there on the front lines uh, to record the first version of history that people are going to see. And I think that's especially now even more true, um, given the media environment that we live in and how instantaneous everything is, whether it's something showing up on Twitter or, you know, Facebook, and now we have Periscope. Um, so news and things that are happening are pretty much instantaneous, um, you know, on demand almost news coverage. And that's kind of what we almost saw with this awful shooting in Virginia, that this guy, uh, the shooter, uh, he filmed it himself. And I think that's probably one of the first, uh, instances where we've seen something like that. And it's just, uh, just goes to the the brazenness and, and the sickness that was uh, going on in this individual's head, unfortunately. Given the way that this guy uh, took that video while he was shooting uh, these people and posted to Facebook, it kind of begs the question, you know, is social media incentivizing these sorts of acts by the, the potential notoriety that these uh, shooters can have by, um, you know, uploading their acts to social media like that? Yeah, I mean, I think that was the first that we had seen in terms of how 
he went about it by committing the crime and then posting on his Facebook page here, you know, and, or tweeting about it. And I mean, I can't think of anywhere where we've seen that kind of depravity other than through, um, you know, certain Al Qaeda or ISIS militant uh, videos where they right, are broadcasting, right. um, you know, broadcasting atrocities and, and human suffering. And uh, so maybe he took a page out of that and, uh, it's just hard to just even fathom how individuals can come up with uh, with some of these things. But if you're going to just go and, and kill people, and, uh, and there's there's no uh, understanding of what's going on in the human mind at that point. So. In your time at ABC News, you know, covering mass shootings, do you see a common thread uh, with the, the the shooters involved in all of these? No, I think each case is so individual. The people who are the gunmen who are, in my opinion, I think do get too much attention in media coverage. You know, we should be remembering the victims, and and maybe that's a policy news organizations lay out in the future. It's, you know, we are not going to talk about the gunmen. Everybody always wants to know about the gunmen. What what went wrong? What, what but then that maybe itself perpetuates. You know, I'm not an expert in that field, but. But talking about the gunmen just um, is something that, you know, they're getting the attention they finally wanted by taking out these awful, horrific acts. The one thing I think that we have seen in a couple of threads based on the Newtown school shooting, uh, the Virginia Tech um, massacre, uh, is that uh, all of these shooters, and I believe in this current past case in the manifesto that was sent, uh, to the news organization um, in, here in Virginia was interest in the Columbine shootings. And I think that was really the, one of the first mass shooting cases that we did see unfold on live television back in 1999, I believe. See how that unfolded on live television, I think. You know, people are always obsessed. I mean, if you were a person to begin to undertake one of these acts, that's something that's probably in you know indelible in your mind, and and we we have seen in, in the uh, the case of Virginia Tech Newtown that uh, based on the internet searches that that these shooters had done um, based on you know post crime scene analysis that that the uh, the Columbine shooting is something that they've always have done research on or have uh, done you know multiple web page visits about. I'm sure you're aware of the cover of the New York Daily News and the controversy surrounding it. What are your thoughts on the cover, and how should the media cover tragedies such as this? I wasn't surprised by it. Um, those images from from the, the gunman's uh, video feed that he had himself—you know—they were out there. They were in the in the uh, in the environment for consumption, and you know, New York, the New York Daily News took the lowest common denominator and, and decided to use those images uh, on the on the front of their on the front of their newspaper, and, you know, personally, I thought it was incredibly poor taste. And my experience, uh, having covered several of these events, unfortunately, uh, at times, you know, news organizations will go through um, procedures, process, what are we going to show, what are we not going to show. Uh, I know that was the case very much so when NBC was sent pictures of the Virginia Tech shooter uh, Sung Hui Cho, who, you know, he had, he had, before the shootings, he had mailed NBC News photographs and his own 
uh, letter, and NBC went through a very painstaking process of how they would handle releasing these images, which included himself holding guns, holding a gun to his head, holding a hammer to his head. Um, and, and I know that all news organizations, you know, now that these things can be available for Internet consumption and everybody can see them, I mean, if you want to, you can essentially go watch the Virginia shooting from last week. If you really want to go find it, you can go find it, you know. Uh, once it's on the, on the Internet, it's in the wild. And um, how journalists and how uh, editors and news organizations decide to use those images is, you know, that's up to them, um, you know, and what their standards are. You know, the NRA has been kind of silent uh, following this last shooting. I understand that you've covered, uh, you know, Wayne LaPierre and the NRA. What are your thoughts on kind of, you know, I guess their their messages and, you know, kind of how they respond to some of these mass shootings? I mean, the NRA, you know, um, very well organized group. Uh, they do a lot of they do a lot of training for people how to properly use firearms. You know, as is the constitutional right uh, that we all have. They do a lot of good training programs in terms of, of safety. I think maybe because they are part of, you know, what people do, you know, call the gun lobby, you know, everyone's going to call them up, you know, and say, oh, you know, what do you, it's not them that are behind these uh, mass shootings. They're, they're not the trigger people. But, you know, the media goes to them because they want instantaneous reaction. But, you know, it's, it's not the NRA's fault. It's uh, not their... I mean, they're they're representing and, and holding up, but you know what they believe in, which is the constitutional right to you know hold and carry firearms. So, um, you know, I think there are a lot of strong feelings about gun control, but until you know, I, I thought personally, I thought after the Newtown school shooting, something might happen, but uh, no, you know, once again, it's it's in the divided political climate that we have in this country, um, I think it's very hard to achieve a lot of uh, things that that uh, individuals or, um, you know, it's, it's very hard for two sides to come together. Very interesting conversation. Uh, you know, I, Jason, I thought you brought up some very good points. Uh, Zach and Jeremy, I thought you asked some great questions tonight. Jason, thank you again for joining us on The Weekly Brew. We appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to uh, discuss this issue with us. Yeah, yeah, glad to uh, be with you guys and um, hope everything goes well. All right, that's Jason Ryan. Jason, thanks again. And for our final segment tonight, Around the Horn. Around the Horn. Jeremy, lead us off. This week at Around the Horn, study finds that studies are wrong. A major project to reproduce study results from, from major psychology journals found that more than half could not be replicated. A painstakingly years-long effort to reproduce 100 studies published in three leading psychology journals has found that more than half of the findings did not hold up when retested. Guys, I, I found this really fascinating. Um, it seems like you, you don't get to watch the news um, every day without hearing about some new uh, study or, or journal reporting um, some startling new finding. And I, I, I think what I found interesting about this is that uh, new truths about human nature are hard to come by. And so um, to certainly take the research you hear in the news with a grain of salt until you can kind of do your own research on it. Very interesting point. And just like the stat that we've always heard, 80% of statistics are made up. So uh, it's a very, very interesting point. Uh, Zach, any thoughts on this? 
Yeah, I'm both surprised and not surprised by this. I mean, we've you know seen it in the studies that have been coming out about uh, you know the manipulation of global warming data and everything. So, I mean, how do we know that we can even trust this study about studies about studies? Zach, you're next on the Around the Horn. Around the Horn. Guys, I'd like to talk about what I'm considering to be the professionalization of college football, specifically in neutral site games. To start this season off, we've got Wisconsin playing Alabama in Arlington here at Cowboys Stadium, which is about 1,000 miles away from Madison and about 600-plus miles away from Tuscaloosa. Just the location of it just doesn't make any sense, and this is not the first time that we've seen this type of a neutral site game take place with two marquee teams. Um, We had a couple of years ago Notre Dame play Navy, in Ireland. And, uh, you know, we had talked about, there was speculation about uh, Baylor playing Cal in Australia, uh, and there, there are countless others. And I, I see this as taking away from the atmosphere of college and what makes college football great on the campuses with the students and the environment. What are y'all's thoughts on these types of neutral site games emerging in college football? I'm actually not opposed to neutral site games. I, I think the professionalization of amateur sports is an issue, especially at the collegiate level. Um, but I, I'm, I'm actually okay with uh, these sorts of games to sort of get the, the college football season rolling. Um, I, I think they can end up helping the programs that uh, participate in them as well as uh, benefit the sport as a whole. Um, you know, it's interesting to see uh, NFL games that are played in the UK, especially London. They, they often sell out and they uh, promote the sport across, uh, across the pond there. Um, I, I certainly would be really interested to see Baylor um, – our alma mater play uh, in a far off land, but uh, I, I know that uh, even with those perks, there certainly are still drawbacks to it. So, um, um, but overall, looking at the cost benefit, I, I think that the benefit is much much greater at this point. As a fan, I definitely enjoy watching these marquee matchups that we have at the beginning of the season in those neutral side environments. Um, I, I do call into question, you know, the true student athlete status. Are we actually doing what is best for the student athletes or are we doing what is best for the universities in terms of uh, revenue? Uh, so, I, I, you know, as a fan, I love it, but I'm not, I'm not sure necessarily if it's the best thing for these student athletes. And that kind of leads me into my topic for Around the Horn. Around the Horn. The college football season officially kicks off this weekend. In fact, It actually kicks off Thursday night as Michigan and Utah square off and TCU travels to Minnesota. So let's make this a little bit fun. We all love college football. Let's talk predictions for the 2015 season. Who do you guys think will make up the final four and the national champion? Jeremy, let's start off with you. I've got Baylor, Michigan State, Alabama, and Oregon. Interesting choices. Who do you have as your national champion? I've actually got Bama as my national champion. I think this might be their year. Interesting. All right, Zach, what about you? What do you think? Well, I'm going uh, almost completely opposite. I'm going Ohio State out of the Big Ten. I'm calling Auburn out of the SEC. I'm going to go ahead and, uh, as much as I hate to do it, I'm going to pick TCU just because they got the home field at the end of November out of the Big 12. And a surprise out of the Pac-12, I'm going with USC. Very, very interesting. Uh, I kind of, along those same lines, have I have Ohio State winning the Big Ten. I think they're going to run the table. Um, I have Auburn coming out of the SEC. I just think you know their offense is very explosive. I really like the Will Muschamp hire uh, there in the defensive side of the ball. Um, and then there were three teams that I was looking to for the final two spots. Baylor, TCU, and Arizona State out of the Pac-12. 
I think the Pac-12 is just going to beat each other up. And I think Baylor and TCU are going to play that game in late November. And they're both going to be undefeated. I look for a close win probably by TCU because of the home field advantage. But I think both Baylor and TCU get into the college football play of this year. And we have two teams from the Big 12 uh, being represented. Uh, but un- unfortunately, I think uh, Ohio State comes home with the, the national championship for the second straight year. Closing time. So very interesting picks from everyone tonight. And uh, we, we definitely had some great conversation. We went over uh, you know, some pretty hot button issues tonight. We had a great interview with Jason Ryan, formerly with ABC News. Uh, did you guys enjoy tonight's podcast? Absolutely. Tonight was a ton of fun. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I had a lot of fun as well. And again, thank you to our guest, Jason Ryan, for calling in tonight and joining us on the podcast, The Weekly Brew. As always, if you have any comments or questions, you can find us on facebook.com slash weeklybrewcast, or you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash weeklybrewcast. For my co-hosts, Zach Taylor and Jeremy Paxton, I'm Austin Staten. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to The Weekly Brew with Austin Staten, Zach Taylor, and Jeremy Paxton.